0: Throughout NASCAR history, keeping up with where drivers have started and where drivers have finished has always been a chore, but it goes a bit further than just those two individual numbers. It's also about where they finished in the past and where they finished maybe in the future. It's also about where they finished in the present. It's been a science from the very beginning, and just like everything in the sport, as well as other sports all over the planet, Things can just be rather confusing without the proper people managing the numbers. There are percentages and people who follow the sport closely and they depend on that type of information. Back in the early days of NASCAR, some of the finishing orders were very incomplete as there was no one there to keep up with the running orders, running tabs, or where the drivers were finishing in those days. Sure, you had the top 10 or maybe the top 15 and that was done basically by pen and pad and well that's exactly where it came from but deep into the field well forget about it those guys would barely have enough money after the race to get gas money or hamburger money and it didn't really matter all that much anyway statistics in the early years of nascar that was the number of people that may have gotten locked up in jail in the city and Well, for fighting and public drunkenness, fender benders, breaking and entering, those types of things, really had nothing to do with NASCAR or stock car racing. As time went on and the sport became a bit more sophisticated, record keeping became more of a thing as we say here in the South. People wanted to know how many times, say Richard Petty finished in the top 20 or a percentage of times David Pearson led laps, say on short tracks or super speedways. You get the picture. Things like that were important. When the media slowly switched from calling in stories to newspapers and then racing down to the Western Union Telegraph office in their own cars to finally getting those loud cat-killing sounds from the telephone modems that barely worked in the mid to early 90s, there was a reason to start keeping up with all these intricate, minute, important stuff called stats. Baseball had been doing that kind of thing, Lord knows, as early as the 20s, and well, NASCAR needed to get with the program. Things like lap sled and laps in the top five and laps in the top 10 percentages. lap led, you know, you get the picture all over the place. Laps, laps, laps. Well, who was the best at this track? Who was the best at that track? Best in percentages. All kinds of things. So the bottom line is that if you wanted to know how many pairs of wingtip shoes Dave Marcus went through in a career, or how many cigarettes Pearson smoked during cautions, or how many cups of coffee Dick Trickle drank on pit road during his career at 100 degree heat, I'm sure somebody somewhere has got those statistics for us to look at. With all these numbers, everybody having numbers, numbers, numbers everywhere these days, we would be lost if we didn't have somebody keeping up with all these statistics.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast, episode number 78. That's right, 78. And we got a lot of driver numbers we're going to talk about later on. As we know, you all know, on every episode of this uh, podcast, we talk about the episode number, and we tie it in with a car number, uh, primarily in NASCAR. And we've got a number of drivers to talk about that have uh, the number 78 has graced the size of their car. But... Um, before we go any further, uh, you know, obviously I want to welcome in my co-host, uh, my good buddy Ben White, and our special guest today. Man, this guy I've known him for over 20 years. I mean, when you talk about sports fantasy racing, uh, you know, the one of the biggest names in the business, and one of the uh, whenever it comes to anything that I need to know about either fantasy or uh, sports history or You know, just uh, race motorsports history, I should say. Uh, The gentleman I reach out to is a good buddy of mine way down there in, as I always like to say, in the middle of nowhere, Texas, Mr. Dan Beaver. Dan, how are you today, my friend?
2: I'm doing great. Uh, The temperature is finally broken here in the Texas Hill country. So um, it's not too bad. We're about to hit a point where, you know, you can go out and do stuff without bursting into flames.
1: Well, define it's not so bad. I mean, to me that would be like 110.
2: What is it about you? Uh, 90.
1: Okay, uh, I can I can live with that. I can live with that. So, we're going to be 80 here in Chicago today. So, but we can live with that. And Ben and, I, and you know, Ben and I have this uh, ongoing thing here where he well, I'll leave it up to you Dan how you're going to respond to this, but Ben calls his town and rightly so Salisbury, North Carolina, whereas I, the being the Yankee that I am, call it Salisbury, North Carolina. So Ben, how is it in
0: Salisbury, North Carolina today? I hate to break it to you guys. I think we're in like the low 70s today. We're doing pretty well. It sort of feels like the North Carolina mountains a little bit. I was just outside a bit ago and out in the lunchroom, as I call it, and uh, <laughs> the famous Ben White lunchroom. And uh, Yeah. And it's, and no kidding. It's in the mid seventies, a little high, 75, 78 today. So um, yeah, it feels good out there today. I can live with that. I can live with that. Yeah, so anyway, good. Uh, Dan, you
1: know, uh, we used to call this podcast A Lifetime in NASCAR, and because we were getting a lot of fans wanting to know more about other uh, forms of motorsports, we've since uh, changed the name to make it A Lifetime in Motorsports. But uh, today, we're going to be talking uh, primarily about the world of NASCAR, no surprise. And your history has definitely been uh, primarily NASCAR over the years. And you know, you are without question one of the biggest historians when it comes to NASCAR stats and minutia. I mean, Ben. I mean, you should see some of the, the uh, record books that Dan keeps and and the uh, you know the uh, spreadsheets he keeps as well too. So, Dan, for the folks that don't know about you, and I'm surprised or not if there are very many people that have not heard about you. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days. And also, how you got into you know both NASCAR as well as you know, getting eventually into the stat keeping and um, you know the record keeping, and then uh, you know just uh, into the fantasy world. Tell us about how how that all kind of evolved for you.
2: Well, for me, it, I guess it was probably a second career, maybe a third career. Um, I came up through um, bookstores, mm-hmm. um, ran the magazine program for Barnes and Noble for for a number of years. Then went out on my own and started publishing a couple of magazines. I got to the end of uh to that, and uh one of the magazines that I was publishing was on NASCAR history, where we were doing um uh, one-offs for for NASCAR drivers. published an episode, an issue about Mark Martin, about Bill Elliott, uh NASCAR's 51 greatest drivers. So that managed to marry both of my passions. Uh, or my skill set with magazines and my passion for NASCAR, but I've been following it all my life. Um, ever since I was aware, it's what my dad and I did. Uh, we weren't huge football fans, which is you know sacrilegious from coming from Texas, but we would run up to Houston. There was a half-mile track up there called Myer Speedway, and that's where we would spend our Saturday nights. So I've been following racing all my life. NASCAR, yes, but everything else as well. Uh, Big H Speedway dirt track in uh, in Texas so um, I've I've been if it goes fast and turns left um, and turn and sometimes right then uh, I've been following it all my life so I've, I've got to ask you do you prefer
1: NASCAR the premier series you know the cup the Xfinity and the truck series or do you prefer the grassroots racing, the dirt races there, or even on the asphalt, well, the, the short ovals and that kind of thing, you know, uh, that, that, uh, so many people like to enjoy racing as well, too. What's, what's your, uh, what's your uh, favorite uh, flavor, if you will, of na- of
2: racing? Some of my happiest times have been at, uh, the NASCAR track because I get to, to see the sport at a different level, but I'd have to say, I probably prefer being on the, the short tracks, the dirt tracks. Because those guys, they're oh so happy to to see you. You're not an obligation. You're not cumbersome. You are there helping them get their their message out. So the dirt track racers, I think, uh, and the short track racers, I, I think, are easily one of the 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 nicest groups of people to talk to. Right, right.
1: Now over the years, um, and again, this uh, delves heavily into your. Uh, record keeping your stats and your fantasy you've spent a, a number of years with yahoo sports as their fantasy guy your the primary motorsports fantasy mm-hmm. guy um you are with nascar.com and um now you're you're with you've been with um nbc sports and also uh, i believe you said it was odyssey you're also with now uh, what tell us about
2: what you're doing these days too uh still handicapping racing uh and with nbc sports i get a chance to write for the motorsports tab Mm-hmm. So it gives me a chance to write a little bit about everything. Um, cover a little bit of IndyCar, a lot of motorcycle racing right at the moment, Supercross, Motocross. Uh, we have a good relationship with them. So they kind of plug me in wherever they, wherever I fit. But the, the NASCAR handicapping, that's what I've been doing for 25 years now or so. Um, tell, uh, figuring out who's the best, uh, most likely to win. And that's been that's fun I I love numbers i've got spreadsheets uh, i've got a database of some 650,000 records that includes all of nascar. um, statistic nascar statistical services data like the driver rating average running position and all that goes into a. um, script that I run that gives me a ranking of uh, what the raw numbers say should who should be at the top, then go through that. Put some uh, instinct on it, some intuition on it, and uh, come up with my numbers. So over the years, I'm probably somewhere around 35 to around 35 percent. I get my uh, picks within three percent of their actual finish. Which,
1: wow! Wow! Wow!
2: Which I think is probably uh, is pretty decent, considering how many times uh, they have screw up in the pits or wreck or blow an engine. So I- I'll-, I'll I'll take 35 <laughs> percent.
1: That's a pretty darn good number. Ben, I'm doing all the talking. I'll let you. uh, uh, I know you and and Dan have seen each other around the press boxes over the years. Uh, I'll let you ask Dan a few
2: questions. Well, yeah,
0: there's just one that came to mind. Being from Texas, uh, you know, we we uh, went to Texas World Speedway, and it was a different speedway from Texas Motor Speedway from 1969 to 1981. Eight races were held in the Cup Series just to give some fans a little bit of uh, you know. Little bit of a background on the on the racetrack there 1969 bobby isaac won a, the very first race there uh, for a team owner nord cross and then of course richard petty 1971 they didn't run a race there in 70 for some reason i guess and then richard petty for Petty enterprises 72 richard petty again and then uh, they came back again in 72 nord cross had buddy baker in the car 73 richard petty for Petty Enterprises again, and then they skipped a few years to seventy nine. Went back with wall Waltrip, and he won for dieguard Racing. Nineteen eighty, kale Yarborough won there, and then they uh, in nineteen eighty one switched to a different car, a much smaller car. But uh, Benny Parsons won for M. C. Anderson. I was just curious, Dan, if if you ever attended any races at Texas World Speedway and what you thought of it there, and and uh, you know being from Texas, just wondered if you uh, maybe attended some races there.
2: Yeah. Um, probably the first big race I ever went to was, was at Texas world? I think I was probably 12, uh, oh. 1973. Richard Petty beat um, Darryl Walter that day. Mm-hmm. Um, rainy, if I remember correctly, uh, muddy. And one of the memories that I have, uh, there was a chili cook off in the infield. The
1: Oh, and boy. some
2: drunk fellow making chili in a concrete mixer standing in front of it
0: <laughs> interesting well that's good that's a good way to do it i guess you can just spin it around and get the meat meat and the beans and all that a good way to mix it i suppose uh, yeah mm-hmm. I never thought of doing it that but yeah I, I guess it would work hey they do things bigger in texas what do you i mean that's, that's, that's whatever better that. way than that yeah just got to make sure you didn't have any chunks in it that you know concrete get all that <laughs> out first uh, yeah. well, work. the
2: concrete's not going to come off the side of those things but uh <laughs> but my feelings are good a couple of years earlier than that uh short yeah. track in uh, that meyer speedway short track ran one nascar race in 1971 before the modern era cut yeah. us cut out most of the short track races so bobby allison won there uh don't remember exactly who finished but got a chance to see HB Bailey uh AJ Foyt ran on that track some great names um yeah great great names from Texas history
0: yeah you know HB Bailey I remember uh ran I believe his car number is 36 ran that car for a lot of years in the cup series and didn't to my knowledge I could be wrong about this I don't think he won any cup series events but a, a name that we saw in the lineups for many, many years. I believe we ran Chevrolet's and Pontiac's for a lot of years. And if I remember, I could be right about this. I think I am red and white, number 36, uh, Pontiac's for years. Very nice guy. I remember, uh, interviewing, uh, HB Bailey a few times along the way, sort of a backmarker guy and back in those days in the seventies. And I think both you guys can back me up on this, They like the JD McDuffie's and the HB Bailey's and the Bobby Waywacks and those guys, they knew they weren't going to win, but what they would do is they sort of race among themselves and, and maybe, you know, if they finished ahead of the, the other guys, they'd maybe take them out for, for a barbecue sandwich or maybe a 10 or $20 bill on the barrel head, that kind of thing. And, and just kind of race in the middle of the pack to say, all right, I finished 22nd, you finished 23rd, you finished 24th. I won this week among that group of guys. And when you say independent guys. Independent of, um, you know, not being able to get factory backing from Chevy or Ford or Dodge. That's when when that's the terminology of being independent. They just didn't have the the backing like the front, front runners did. And a lot of times what they would do is they would take parts, uh, from the other guys that they had already raced and say, can you either, can I have your parts or can you, or let me run your parts to see how sturdy they'll be for you for next week or the week after the week after test your parts for you, if you will. And before they maybe run them, you know, for championship type races. And that's what those independence guys did. But yeah, HB Bailey I hadn't heard that name in a while, but yeah a good good guy i remember interviewing him along the way uh, years in the past yes
2: yeah and a, a story that goes along with uh with him he ran a junkyard in south houston and um my dad got run off the junkyard one day uh apparently it wasn't open yet dad was looking for something went into the uh into the junkyard and H. P. bailey ran him off so uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> fast boy. forward uh i also write fiction i've got a, a a novel um second novel going uh race mystery and it's set in a junkyard in homage to h.p bailey
0: oh wow very good that's well that's cool. great to, to that's have cool. his name uh honored that way because uh, like I say a lot of those guys uh, they didn't get the headlines like some of the front runners did but yeah anytime you can honor those guys for sure that's that's good that you did that
1: yeah, yeah dan i got a question you know going back to what you were saying about texas world speedway I often wonder why did that track not succeed? Because, you know, uh, it was correct me if I'm wrong. It was a two mile track, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, it was built right around the same time that you had Michigan international, you had the, uh, um, uh, California speedway, which is now what is <clears> it? it's changed name so much. I think, was it auto club speedway now on Fontana, uh, which is now soon going to eventually going to be cut back from a two miler to a, a half miler is what the, the reports are, but. Texas Motor Speed, or sorry, Texas World Speedway, rather, I would I've I never could understand why it wasn't popular. I mean, you had a lot of race fans down that way. Um, I mean, how how do you quantify why that track, you know, basically was only around for what, maybe about 15, 20 years or so, and then it just kind of, you know, grew weeds and eventually that was it for it.
2: Yeah, and ben's uh list of the races that were there even when they were there it was a little hit or miss mm-hmm. um i suspect it's mostly about geography the closest track to us for the longest time was talladega mm-hmm. uh, in alabama otherwise we didn't have a whole lot of uh, nascar races here in the in the center part of the, the country um, michigan managed to make it work even though they're kind of off the beaten path but a lot of that had to do with uh, the big three manufacturers, and I guess we were always just a bit of uh, an eddy in the middle of the, the country. Um, since they didn't run it as often, they never got into the rhythm of everybody of of getting enough people there. Mm-hmm. It's also a little bit distant from Dallas and Houston. It's about halfway between the two. So had it been closer to Dallas or Houston, I suspect it would have done a little bit better. The College Station not exactly
0: on the beaten path yeah yeah Yeah. and i agree with that too uh, dan and i think you know anytime you built a speedway take ontario motor speedway for instance i think it's a good example of what you're saying it had you been able to airlift ontario motor speedway so to speak i'm being facetious but if you could airlift that one into the 90s or uh maybe into the early 2000s it would have been perfect It, it had the 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 China and the linen tablecloths and the, it was at a carbon copy of Indianapolis motor speedway. But the problem was it was built at the wrong time. And I've I've often heard people say that it was so good that you had to have the thing filled up like 328 days a year to be able to pay the bill, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. and that was somewhat the same problem. Texas world speedway had, it was a, it was a nice facility, but. And I and I have to honestly say I'd never attended a race there because I was too young. But it, it it was so good that you almost had to fill the thing up with something every time out, every day. You had to have something in there, not just NASCAR. You had to have IndyCar. You had to have parades. You had to have car shows. You had to have. I mean, the doors had to be open all the time just to break even in that era of racing back in the late '90s or excuse me, late '60s, '70s. And that's what a lot of tracks were uh saddled with if you will they they just they needed more people more money and and they were you know take if it cost three million dollars so to speak hypothetically to build it well that was a lot of money it still is but that was a lot of money in those days Mm -hmm. and you just struggled and struggled to get people to come to embrace uh stock car racing or indy car racing whatever it was and you just had to have people in the fannies in the seats as they say for everything you possibly could just to break even and that's what a lot of speedways faced in that era not like today where you had exposure and you had so- social media and you had uh facebook and you had every everywhere you turned you had some type of way to you know sell a ticket or exposure back in those days it was headlines in newspapers and uh, i mentioned if you're extremely lucky on television on the 11 o'clock news, there was just no way to get the word out. And, uh, that that's what they suffered from a lot of speedways did.
2: Yeah. The best way to, to follow NASCAR, uh, if you weren't on, on the beat is, I don't know, box scores in the news in the newspapers, about all you got. Mm. So I would every Monday morning, I would always make sure that I bought a newspaper when I was living far away from, from NASCAR tracks. So so that I could keep up there. And you might get some editorial, you didn't always, uh, but you'd kind of piece things together from the box score. And um, um, I think it's one of the reasons that I pay so much attention to stats now, because as I was in my 20s, 30s, it was kind of the only way, is the best way to get the information.
0: Yeah, and and you know, Jerry, uh, just something that came to mind as Dan was talking, I remember when I was 12, 13, 14, I'm 62 now, but I remember my dad and mom would get so irritated with me on Sunday nights because I was supposed to be in bed by 9 10. It was a school when I had to be ready for Monday school and I would stay up and watch the 11 o'clock news and to see who won the race, because you couldn't always get races on the radio. I mm-hmm. uh, talk about the cup races and that, and if you're really lucky, the, the uh, sports announcer, would give you 15, 20 seconds of state. say, well, Bobby Allison won today at Pocono. He finished so-and-so and David Pearson was second, Kelly was third. And that's all you could really get. And they was like, are you ever going to bed? And it was like, yeah, yeah. Just as soon as the yes. sports is off, you know, <laughs> and I would just get so in trouble because I just wanted to know who won the race. And, and that was all you could get. Just a small snippet of, of something and i would lay awake at night thinking who won the race who won the race who won the race and i you know and, and i had to you know try to find it in the newspaper or something next morning because back in those days you didn't get anything you had three national networks you had abc cbs and nbc and they rarely covered nascar races hardly ever until 79 when the daytona 500 uh, did the flag to flag coverage with ken squire prior mm-hmm. to that you didn't get it and you could hear it on the radio in those days if you had your car turned a certain way, right, Dan, or either if you, if you could find a radio station that would cover it. But mm-hmm. the, the, your hope was if you could get that local TV station to maybe give you 10, 15 seconds, 20 seconds of who won the race. And gosh, I got in trouble so many, so many Sunday nights for staying up too late because I wanted to know who won the race. That was the way it was in those days. Yeah. Gee, I got in trouble for listening to the Beatles with a little transistor under my pillow.
1: You got in trouble for let, wanting to stay up to watch the get the results of the of the races. I mean, kind of the <laughs> yeah, same thing, like, but it's,
0: it's different. But yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's like either tell me who won the race from I'm, I'm gonna lay awake i all night wondering who won the race. <laughs> you know. So that, that's that was my problem.
2: Well, and even then you got, you got the big races sort of, but finding the short track races was almost impossible.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I remember probably one of the first short track races I managed to see on TV was, um, uh, WTVS before it was national. I was living in Charlottesville at the time going to grad school. And that was the race that, uh, Earnhardt hooked, uh, Waltrip and sent him into the wall. Oh, I yeah. think Kyle Petty, like three fourths of a lap down, managed to uh meander his way through and get to the, the finish line yeah and those memories they just don't go away um in part because they're not crowded out by all the other memories but there was there was just some great racing that uh, uh, it, I was always jealous of people that lived in the southeast that could uh, could make the races or, or find their find it on their local TV
0: mm-hmm. that was February of 86 by the way right right yeah it sure was.
1: Dan, I've got a question. You know, you'd mentioned that, you know, your career has taken you in in several different paths. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, from Barnes Noble, you got into magazines and the the NASCAR magazines, and then you got into the stats, man. Uh, When you decided to um, essentially go full time with the NASCAR stats, the fantasy racing, you were really one of the forerunners um, of, of fantasy racing because there really had not been that much up to that point so you were kind of like a pioneer and i mean what was it that you saw at that time that you knew this was going to be something that people were going to want to know they were going to want to get you know the not only your stats that you provided but that fantasy racing and and uh, you know would become such a big thing just like fantasy baseball fantasy football etc be, has become too as well
2: probably just case being in the right place at the right time um, I had an internet company that uh, fulfilled single copy magazines. There were a lot of subscription services. No one was doing single copies. And that was my my background. So one of my investors was invested in another company called Fanball um, that had just designed the first game for NASCAR.com. Hmm. They needed a writer. And at the time, I ran out of funding for the internet company. So. Right place, right time. Didn't really think of it as being necessarily a career, but it's like if someone will pay me enough to keep the wolf away from the door and I can think and write about NASCAR all day, then it was a no-brainer. Okay. And so from there, Yahoo, I think was next. AOL was somewhere along in the way along the way. I worked for NASCAR scene for a bit. Um, I, just, I I've had some great clients over the years, but it all started with. The, um, creating content for the first, I think I came along the second year, NASCAR had the game. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot of content the first year. So I've been, uh, writing about the NASCAR game for 25 years, up until recently, hopefully get back to them. Uh, now that I've got some time on my hands. So, Is,
1: is fantasy racing still as popular today as it was, let's say 10, 15 years ago.
2: I think it is. It, it's always going to lag behind football, baseball, Uh, basketball so we're the low hanging fruit always and that that hurts sometimes Um, at the moment NBC Edge isn't having doesn't have any NASCAR coverage which hurt me a lot (laughs) because that was um, one of my major clients Um, and I I think it's because they needed to put some more resources towards football Um, so we've always got that but we've always got that core fan also that isn't that wants the game. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of whether or not you make a career at it. And I don't know, uh, every year, I get nervous every fall. Um, I somehow managed to keep doing it for all this time. So, you know, uh, it's a qualified answer.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, Dan, something come to mind as you're talking there, <clears throat> and I, I read this somewhere, uh, a year, a few years back where, and I think I'm right to say this back with the Apollo space program. And you look at, you watch some of these movies that there's this big control room where, when they launched the rockets that took this entire room of computers to launch this rocket, if I'm speaking correctly. Uh, someone wrote recently where they could basically launch this rocket with a laptop today Mm -hmm. because of Mm -hmm. all the technology that we have. So my question is to use this in the mid eighties, early nineties, how did you come up with having to keep all the statistics straight without having the technology and computers that we have today? Because even with today in our computers. To me, it seemed like it'd be difficult to keep up with it. So how did you do it in the early 80s and mid 90s and all that?
2: Uh, we had a, a, a fairly robust database system behind the, the magazine program that we were using. So I knew that, the, that there were robust database programs out there and went to a couple of my friends that had been working with me, asked them what it would cost to build me a database uh, shell and it was i don't know five thousand dollars or so which was way too much at the time considering that i was basically unemployed so i went and got a book um and my database at the moment is still a microsoft access database Mm -hmm. which is straining its limits i need to eventually take it up to my sql or sql server but uh it's about 600,000 megs i think uh for that 650,000 records um and so i just built my own database and and played around with it till i got it to 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 do what i wanted and the reason i wanted my own database is i wanted to be able to write my own scripts uh i knew that i was going to want to look at data differently than most people just uh, Finishing results is not enough. You know, you need to know how they got there, in order to handicap their strength. So the when NASCAR statistical services started to build out that part, that was a godsend. Before that, I would uh, collect things like laps in the top five, laps in the top ten, that I could do when I was watching the race. But then, when I when we get the average running position, we have the driver rating. It's not flawless, but it's good, and it's a good indication of who actually was strong, and 80 percent, 85 percent of the time it's the same driver who wins but for that 15 percent that it's not martin truex jr last week kyle bush last week um it's really important to know who who dominated up until yeah. the closing lap. yeah because
0: yeah, uh, right because i when i ask that question I, I go back and a lot of times we go back and we we talk about and we'll do it on this show as well and we talk about people who won races back in the 1949 50 51 their first start or where they started, where they finished, et cetera. But some of those records are not complete and because the people writing them were in the same press box and they were, some of their pages were blowing in the wind when, when the field came by, and, you know, we've talked to, we've laughed about that, how people would be handed goggles when they walked in the press box, oh, thanks for this wonderful gift. It's like, you don't understand. You're going to need those in about 20 minutes because the cars are going to be flying through here. But, uh, you know, and there's so much to keep up with uh, to me and even today, but back in those days, it was pen and paper and the way they scored and the way they did, we've had, we've had shows on scoring and how that was done and how haphazard some of that was and how prehistoric it was compared to what we do now. But, but you had to start somewhere Mm -hmm. and, you know, had to come up with, you know, wasn't too two football teams on a field. It was 40 cars or 36 cars. There's a lot of cases back in those days, 70 cars and 75 cars and like, holy cow, how are we going to keep up with this after 50 laps or hundred laps? So, yeah, so it's, um, and, and, you know, when we take all that for granted, all of us in the media today, we sit down in media centers and shake hands with our friends and sit down and grab a soft drink and, you know, open the laptop and Hit a few buttons and the world is in our fingers. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's for so many years, even as late as uh, the early 90s, uh, things were, you, you know, you remember the old computers where they made it sound like a cat dying, you know, when you turn it on and all that, you know. And I remember, uh, I've told Jerry about this and I know Jerry probably had one of the old TRS eighties. I know, still there. have three of them in my house, and, believe it or not. Know, I still and, have them. Yeah. And, and how the, uh, you know, you would pray if you weren't religious before you got to the racetrack, you were by the end of the day, because you hit that sin, but boy, just please God let us thing get back to wherever, because it was one, you know, a couple of things were going to happen either. The editor got it after 90 inches. We went by inches, I guess, not you know, not words or whatever back in those days. It was mm-hmm. always inches. And he, he just prayed, please, God, let this thing get back. Or you'd have to write the thing over because he'd lose it. You mm-hmm. know, I lost several really good stories. I don't know how good they were. They were good to me. I don't know how good they were to <laughs> the editor. I remember what I wrote on Ernie Irvin three different times. And by the time I got to the third one, I pretty well you know memorized it. But those TRS 80s, we used to call them trash 80s because they were just they had the little window in the you remember those, right? They had right. Well, not only do they have those, remember the couplers we had to have to put the phone in there? And that's how we would send it, you know. Yeah, the the wires look like a bowl of spaghetti. Yeah, remember those? Yep. And so we've come such a long, long way. But and and what you do, Dan, is just trying to keep give us some degree of hope, you know, when it comes to you know, coming up with all these statistics and numbers and figures and you know because without you guys we'd be lost really because yep. we're trying to keep make some kind of sense of what's going on because think about what i'm saying here you got 40 guys out there and you're watching the front but you got other guys towards the back that you're doing this they're doing this also for mm-hmm. 40 you know 36 races a year and their numbers are just as important so we we admire you guys for what you're doing to mm-hmm. keep us straight because we Lord knows we now we need all the help we can get on a daily basis, let alone during a race. Right. So this is hard to keep up with.
2: And the benefit of, um, I'd always followed NASCAR, but until I started writing about it, I didn't have to think about the drivers that finished 20th to 40th. Mm -hmm. And, um, with fantasy racing, those guys are relevant. Um, Mm. if you've got a salary cap, you can't take marquee drivers, all marquee drivers. So you have to have an idea of who that 20 to 30th place driver, who are going to be good values there but uh, but while you're talking about the um the goggles and what have you and praying whenever you went to uh the track made me think of phoenix uh before they knocked down that rickety ass uh or that that rickety uh, uh meat box they had on the outside yeah. i remember being there a few t- a few times when the cars would come down the front stretch and it swayed yes i hope this thing stays number
0: <laughs> yes you're i i forgot that matter of fact i might have been up there sitting with you at times i remember that thing and and i didn't mean to interrupt you down but i just i was i got excited when you said that because it's true they would come down the front stretch and you could literally feel that thing move i mean when the cars went by it went by and oh cow, are we are we going to survive what is it, 312 laps at phoenix are we going to survive this race? yes i, we will. I remember
2: I, I prayed a time or two sitting up in that press box I'm
0: kidding I mean the wind the wind would come by and the cars would come by it's like whoosh every time they come by there man did you do that Jerry did you, did you I guess you sat up there too right oh yeah and, and it's like okay when And I'm talking about this
1: yep and I'll I'll say this I mean um Don't get me wrong, and I mean this with all due respect to the folks down at Phoenix Raceway. Love the place. You know, it's always been one of my favorite places to go to, but I'll never forget my first time ever there. It's a bittersweet memory because my first race ever at phoenix was the day that alan Kowicki won his first cup race and did the polish victory lap you know, you know otherwise known as the backwards uh celebration after he won that race but i'll never forget that press box because that had to be the absolutely filthiest press box i have ever been in in my life i think i've told you the story ben but i mean cigarette yeah. butts all over the place dust i mean it's like they hadn't cleaned that thing in two years probably, and I'll that's, for whatever reason, that thing sticks in my mind, because they brought Kowicki up to the press box afterwards, you know, to talk to the writers, Um, and I don't know if that was specifically a situation where the track did that, rather than letting the reporters go down to the track, or the pits, or the garages, or whatever, I don't remember, but all I know is that, you know, when when Kowicki sat down, he's like, put his hand down on the table, he like, looked at his hand, and he goes, you, know, you can, it's almost like you're saying, "Hmm, dust, dirt, what's going on here?" But that's a whole other story. But, yeah, but you know, yeah. but you're right. I mean, I remember that that place was rocking and rolling, and it not only would it roll and move around when the cars would go by, but when the fans would start cheering. And oh, and this was also right around the time that the wave started getting into prominence in mm-hmm. the world of sports. Have you ever been in, in Phoenix Raceway when they were doing the wave and you were in the press box, the old press box? Oh my God. Oh my God! They, you thought for sure if the cars weren't going to get you going by, the wave was going to get you going by. So <laughs> we've had a lot of
0: fun in the sport, though. We yes, really we did. Have, and, yes, we and, have. Yes, we have. But I admire uh, what you've done, Dan, over the years, seriously, because I mean, you know, we take so much for granted in this business it's about the guys behind the scenes that are there to help us and, and keep not only us straight but the fans straight. Because it's so it's so great to be able to just get on your computer and look up the stats and the uh the information that you need we and i'm so guilty of this and i'll admit it a bit about being able just to look up something oh yeah there it is he, he finished 37th and he was 22 points behind so and so and you know and, but somebody behind the scenes like yourself is helping to put that together we sincerely appreciate everything you do for us we really do and i mean that sincerely because i mean we just we all i'm the world's worst about taking it for granted thank you very kindly for all you do for us
2: yes ah, i love numbers so um my standard line is what i do for a living is what i would do for fun so the fact that i've meant that i've managed to be able to do this for 25 years i don't take it lightly i i'm i am so grateful to uh to have been able to do this for so long
0: and and i have to say it's always been two and two has always added up to six to me <laughs> <laughs> so So we appreciate people like you. I mean, it's always been that way. And I've had teachers in school say, what is wrong with you? (laughs) It's like, no worries. I've got people to help me. It's okay. But no, I'm not a math guy at all. I mean, numbers just never have computed in my head at all. So, you know, I can't even add up, you know, the easiest (laughs) things. So so I have to laugh at myself, but thanks for all you do for us. Well, you know, Dan, I've got to ask you a question
1: and You know, I've known you for such a long time. I think I already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to let you answer it. Obviously, have you ever caught somebody wrong with their numbers? In other words, have you like you know, with your the the huge database you have, the you know the results, the 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 you know the the all the various numbers, the way you um, go through numbers and and quantify them, and that have you ever caught somebody being wrong? And have you ever you know, brought it to their attention. I'm I'm kind of curious.
2: Uh yeah. Uh, nobody likes it when you bring it to their attention, so I don't know that I don't do that all that much. But uh, <laughs> there are a number of broadcasters that say things off the hip that that aren't correct. It's gotten better. Uh, the guys over at Racing Insights, um, Russell can't remember his last name at the moment. Those guys, I think, are doing a really good job and and kind of keeping everybody uh, uh, straight also.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but it's just a lot of numbers out there, and, I, and I'm not always right. It's it's why I'm a writer instead of a broadcaster. I'd be saying things that were wrong probably all the time if I couldn't go back and reference it and and edit it. So, um, you know, my mama used to say that uh, I have a face made for radio and a voice made for writing. So that's uh, that's how I ended up to be being a writer. So. I liked it. I like it. I got to remember that line. I got to, but let me let me ask you this. You know, you've been
1: not only have you had such a significant impact upon the sport with the way you um, you know bring numbers together and you quantify numbers, you study numbers, you relate to numbers. But have you ever been at any events, races that just absolutely stand out? not only for the races they were, but for the, the numbers or how they played out numerically. I mean, is, is there a way to kind of quantify, like, you know, was there maybe a Daytona 500 or a, you know, a final race of the season that uh, you know, just sticks out in your mind as being, you know, the numbers didn't necessarily, quant- um, uh, you know, quantify or, or, you know, you um, know, uh relate to the race that we just saw. Do you know what I'm saying? Um uh,
2: yes. I, I think that probably all of the all of the numbers tell a story and, and every race tells a story and it's it's a slightly different story. Um the the Daytona race we just saw with all of the the I don't want to call them back parkers, but I don't know what else to the the guys who were too slow to get into the wreck, then they end up skewing those those stats but it's a career moment for them and it is one it's a it's a very important um storyline for them uh whenever dave marcus would win a race whenever some of the these uh, these guys who typically were running in the back of the pack managed to to to, to do that mm-hmm. um a lot of it relied on more attrition or more critical attrition at the time um you're not going to do that probably if a Richard Petty doesn't have a problem or David Pearson doesn't have a problem. So that's the analogy now to to some of what we're seeing with super speedway races. Um, the story is still a good story. And I like to I, I like to think that I always root for the story or always root for my handicap. Who, people ask me what my favorite driver is. It's like, Whoever I ranked number one that week, that's who I, <laughs> I want to win.
1: Well, there goes um, my question, my follow-up question. I was going to ask you, who's your favorite driver? But he just blew that out with me. <laughs> uh,
2: and, and, and I've got you know, I've got people that I enjoy talking to, people that I that I probably like to watch race a little bit better than others. But for the most part, just got to root for the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. I agree.
0: Well, I mean, you know, we've talked about this before, though, Dan. But I mean, the one by far that comes to mind always is the 90, 1992 Hooters, 500 at, at Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I mean, that one's the one that made all of us pull our hair out and fortunately grew back, but I mean, you know, what do you uh, mean to me?
1: Mine didn't grow back. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, you know, I, I'm sorry, Jerry, but, uh, yeah, you know, the, the one with bill Elliott and Alan Kulwicki trading mm-hmm. lap after lap after lap with Kawiki winning the championship, Elliot wins the race. But I mean that one was um uh, gosh, I mean who would have thought I think it was seven either six drivers or seven drivers that going into the race that had a mathematical chance of winning the championship.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you I mean, every promoter, everybody, uh every, NASCAR would love to have that one happen at the end of every season. It won't. But um wow, what what a great ending to a season for that one uh it just happened to be in the numbers happened to be in the cards that year
2: and Alan Kowicki basically doing the math in his head as he was driving yeah knowing sure. that if he yeah. if he, he needed to lead two more laps to lock up the uh the five bonus points for the most laps led um and didn't fit until he until he got that uh until he hit that milestone yeah. then you've got uh I believe that was Richard Petty's last race and Jeff Gordon's first race yeah um and I, I was in the middle of doing the pitch for the first NASCAR magazine that I was doing. Um, so I'm sitting there just furiously taking notes, trying to figure out how I tell the story to people in the magazine industry that are not race fans. Um, and how do you, how do you get that excitement for them? And obviously did okay because, um, they, they went with my project and we, we published magazines for a year or so, but, um, Yeah, I remember just there were so many storylines in there, and I think that's part of our our challenge. A lot of times is how do you find the most salient Mm storyline in a race that has 40 or 36 now? Um, And I always like finding those those stories that everybody's gonna write about the winner. Everybody's gonna write about the 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 marquee drivers. Where do you find those stories that, uh, that that are not them? And that's when we get back to short track racing and we get to, uh, to the back half of the field. I think those guys are just as colorful, uh, talking about, uh, racers that, uh, raced among themselves. One of my favorite quotes has always been Delma cowards. Uh, I never won a race, but I never lost a party. Those are the guys <laughs> I want to hang out with.
0: Sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the, the guys that are there, they, and, and another great one, uh, Darrell Waltrip uh told me this year's and he said this to many people but you know bill france jr he was uh, Waltrip was complaining about something to bill france jr and said your job daryl is to get out there and give someone some somebody to pass you know this is early in his career and and that's so true because if you only had six or seven or eight top guys racing i mean it's not the same thing and you have you need those back guys you need 40 car fields and they know they're in that era. Now not today, because I mean I honestly believe anybody in a forty car field today could win. But back in those days they knew going into the races they weren't gonna win. Mm-hmm. They knew that. The you only had in the early 70s, you only had maybe on the best day, you might have had 10 cars that really had a shot at winning the race. The other uh what, 30 cars honestly were there uh as part of the field and they in the back of their head, they knew it. Now, with that said, I, uh, what comes to mind is 1982, I believe, when Dave Marcus did not pit at Richmond, and he ends up winning the race because everybody else pitted and a thunderstorm came. Those types of things. They're always hoping that things go in the right direction and a miracle happens and they win a race. But I mean, for the most part, a lot of those guys knew they were not going to win, but they were—they were great racers don't get me wrong i'm not trying to take anything away from them but you might have eight or ten or a dozen cars in that era the 70s and it got a little better in the 80s and a little better in the 90s and before you know it we're where we are where you have 36 to 40 cars it could win now but for many many years they showed up knowing that they were going to try to get a good day uh, but they were going to get passed and and david pearson was going to be smoking a cigarette as he went around them <laughs> <laughs> and it was okay you know it's like see you i'll see you after it's over you know that was just the way it was in the 70s yeah
2: so. and we we still think it was the good old days Yeah, yeah. Um, that was fun um fun the racing once. now definitely more more competitive i think nascar has made some great decisions don't agree with all of them but uh closing that competition level has been it's what's kept the sport relevant against national sports we were recovering it in the 70s and 80s we weren't challenging football mm-hmm. and baseball and basketball and we can kind of challenge them now football is always going to be king or i don't know not always but um but we can challenge it and i think that I think that's because of a series of good decisions. Right.
1: Dan, this is going to be, really be a hard question, I'm sure, to answer. But, you know, let's look back, you know, from the, the when NASCAR started in the late 40s all the way through, let's say, to maybe 2003, 2004, somewhere in that frame, time frame, roughly about a 50-year time for a stretch, uh, you know, we talk about, Richard Petty, you know, he's got the 200 wins. We've got, he's got the seven championships, as did Earnhardt, uh, as did Jimmy Johnson. Um, Kyle Busch has got, what, 160, I think, wins between the trucks, the the uh, Bush series or the Xfinity series and uh, the Cup series. But is there one guy that in your research and all the, the uh, number crunching you've done over the years that. You could say without equivocation was the best driver who may not have been the best driver. What I mean by that, like I said, is that he was the most consistent. You know, maybe he may not have won, you know, 80 wins or, you know, 100 wins or, or, or that. But I mean, you know, when you would put together all the top fives he'd have, uh, the polls and that kind of thing. I mean, is there anybody that just stands out that maybe people, may may overlook or maybe not think about as much over the years
2: uh well uh, the first thing that popped in my mind is I've always thought that David Pearson was probably a better racer than Richard Petty even though he's only has half the, the starts because he never ran the same way that that Richard Petty did mm-hmm. um and it's not a particularly uh popular viewpoint from people who. Love Richard Petty as the king, and not taking it away from him. We don't know what would have happened if Pearson had been in those other races. Um, beyond that, I, I, I there are a lot of undervalued drivers right now that I think are doing a lot better. Um, I know that you know this is more about history than, than recent, but uh, someone like Ross Chastain um, was doing as the most that he could and when he finally got into good equipment we could see what what that capability was right and right. uh jeremy mayfield i think yeah. might have fit into that same uh that same group um his life kind of exploded but uh but he definitely could get more seemed to get more out of a car than ernie irvin i think uh just sheer determination and um uh, um not caring if he made uh made people mad could get more out of a car than uh than his contemporaries so i think there there have always been a few people like that but i'd have to think on it to 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 get some of the, the drivers from the 70s again just because we didn't see them at the front and their good day might have been five laps off the pace yeah exactly uh, but right. they were still getting more out of the car than uh, than someone else would get in that same car
0: that's kind of what i was getting at right exactly mm-hmm. yeah then and Dan, you know, another one that comes to mind, too, just off the top of my head would be Kale Yarborough, too, because Cale, and this is what fascinates me about Kale, he did not know a lot about a race car, as far as the mechanical side of a car, because he would leave notes in the seat of the car and say, it's, it's, I think it's doing this, I think it's doing that. And they would leave notes back in the seat saying, maybe it's the moron driving the car, (laughs) you know, stuff like that, that they would just joke with him and say, maybe that's what's wrong with it. But, you know, it's all in fun. But he didn't know anything about what to do with the car. And his attitude was, well, I don't know how to describe it, so just leave it like it is, and I'll just win with it. it And and he could. And, he, you know, and, and, of course, we've heard the stories about how you know they would and i've told this before and some may have not heard the story but uh jeff hammond was telling me this one how they would have this really bad buzz in the radio and they couldn't figure out what the buzz was and they kept the, the guys charged the radio said jeff i swear i can't figure out what it is i can't figure out what it is well, as it turned out, Kale was hitting, was barely hitting the, the button on the radio, and it was him going, Rrr. it was him, not the radio, because <laughs> he was just gritting his teeth so bad trying to get the car through the turns. And they said, Well, get your dang hand off the radio. <laughs> you know, it's you, man. It's you doing it. But he could take a 10th place car and win with it, you know, mm-hmm. because he was just so determined. Uh, but he said, uh, again, he said, if you can't figure out how to fix it, don't worry about it. I'll just win with it. And dang, if he didn't, I mean, he, he was just a tough old guy, you know, he would wrestle alligators, he wrecked, you know, crashed a plane twice and got hit by a lightning. I think twice and you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, what's driving 200 miles an hour every Sunday, that's no big deal. I can do that, you know, it's like this, driving a race cars, no big deal compared to the rest of my life. And that's the way he thought of it. And, you know, and that's why he won 83 races and three championships, but he, he didn't, it was, it was so fascinating. He didn't know how to fix a car, but he could win with it. And I just, it was interesting to me.
2: And then you have someone like Jimmy Johnson, who I think a big part of his success was that ability to communicate. Um, the reputation seems to be that he needed a, a really strong car to win, but he could communicate what he needed back to Chad Canals to get that strong car. Yeah. So there are so many different ways to win in the sport. Um, huh. That it, it, it it's kind of a life lesson. I mean, ever all of us get to uh, a point of success or failure or different ways, but but there's a way to get there
0: and i can tell you this to be absolutely unequivocally sure about this the man does not like mayonnaise <laughs> uh, you know i tried to do a story with him say tell me about what do you like on a sandwich it's like oh, i like mustard i like ketchup i like this like what about mayonnaise Absolutely cannot stand mayonnaise. Well, <laughs> well, well, I would agree with that. I mean, I can't stand mayonnaise. My wife
1: absolutely loves it, and I hate every time she gives me a sandwich because I can taste it. Mayonnaise. I said, yeah. I want
0: Miracle Whip. Damn it, I don't want mayonnaise. No, no the, the, here's the deal, man. He, can, John, Jimmy Johnson has said, I cannot stand to taste of mayonnaise. I am from California. Nobody eats kind cal- of mayonnaise, in California. That's I don't right. Like mayonnaise. That's true. It's like so. So, tell me how you really feel about it. It's like. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's like, I do not, I'm just joking with you guys, but no, seriously, he's like, you know, he was a great driver, but the thing I love about Jimmy is he never got upset about anything. He just, he, it's like, you could tear, tear all four tires off the car and crash it, flip it upside down. And the interview would be well, um, I don't know what happened out there. You know, you're just mm-hmm. never going to, you know, about anything. It's just like very calm, very cool and maybe that has a lot to do with how successful he was but he's you're right dan he's a great communicator for sure yeah right. hey dan um we want to ask you about your
1: pet project uh here in a second but we as we always do on every episode of a lifetime in motorsports we talk about the episode number and we correlate it with the car number uh you know that of uh, t- typically it's a nascar ca- car number so this is episode number 78 of a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast and uh Ben you know uh I'm I went through some research on racingreference.com there's this number 78 has had 738 starts 22 wins 93 top 5s 174 top 10s 16 poles and I'm going to leave it to you to start off with uh, all your numbers because I also have a couple other things I'm going to uh, add once you're done with uh, with your uh, the
0: research you did too as well. Okay, well here's the deal for number car number 78. As you know, we always do uh, a little bit of research as you said on each car number. Uh, for that number, though, Martin Truex Jr. leads the way with 17 victories with the number. He did all of those with Furniture Row Racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, two, actually, well, three other drivers uh, that won with the number. Jim Pascal has three victories with car number seventy-eight, and they came at Hillsborough, North Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, and Charlotte, and North Carolina, in 1955. And that's before Charlotte Motor Speedway was built. That's the old Charlotte Speedway. Uh, Regan Smith also won in car number seventy-eight. He won. The Southern 500 in 2011. Actually, it was May 11th, 2011, when they called the Southern 500 uh, that race, but it was held in May then and not uh, in September. And there was a driver by the name of Dick Passwater uh, who also won on April 3rd in 1950. I again also at Charlotte Speedway. And the first time the number 78 won a race in NASCAR, it was a 98 lap race at Dayton Speedway and the driver, uh, actually is the first start for the number 78. And the driver's name was Bob Moore. He finished 26, not exactly sure where he started. This is one of those things where the statistics were not complete, but he drove an Oldsmobile and he owned himself. And again, he started, uh, or excuse me, finished twenty-six, And it was came on Sunday, April, August 20th, 1950. Exactly. You know, you mentioned about
1: uh, guys like Jim Paschko and Reagan Smith, uh, Martin Truex Jr. I mean, other guys that have driven that car. BJ McLeod, as recently as this um, most recent week, most recent Southern 500 at Darlington, drove the number 78. Joe Nemechek drove it for a number of years. Kenny Wallace, Buddy Arrington, and as we mentioned, Kurt Busch and Jim Paschko as well. But, you know, uh, Ben, one of the things I've been looking forward to talking to Dan about is uh, kind of his um, his pet project right now. And this is such a cool thing that he and his daughter, Victoria, or is, uh, she otherwise known as Tori, uh, are doing. It's called A Lap Around America. And uh, I'm going to let Dan kind of fill in uh, the whole story because I would not do the story justice. I mean, uh, tell us about how you came up with this idea and more importantly what you plan on doing with your lap around america with your daughter because this is just such a cool story
2: well in college i read uh john steinbeck's travels with charlie mm-hmm. um, and his search for america and that's just kind of kind of always stuck in the back of my mind way back then i thought i had an old dodge dart um i was going to weld the um the back shut the trunk shut put a bed back there a desk over on the right hand side where the passenger seat goes and do my own lap around america uh, then life intervened get to the point where i'm covering nascar and the more i thought about it so like, that auto racing is the most quintessential american sport yep. everything else has its roots in something else football baseball basketball but but racing is is american um the first races might have been over in uh, in France or Germany, but uh, when you really think about it, the stock car racing and, and what have you, it's it's American. But every part of every region of uh, the country is different. You get a lot of uh, paved late model stocks in the Southeast. You get a lot of sprint car racing in the Midwest. You get a lot of sports car racing on the, the, the West Coast, big block modifieds in the Northeast. So everybody's managed to put their own little spin on it. So for me, it's kind of what makes us different. It's also what makes us the same. Um, and I've been talking about this for years. So at one point, Victoria said, "I'm just going to steal your idea and do it." So <laughs> uh, I'd already gone through a divorce. Uh, I jokingly say I screwed up the relationship that I was in at the moment and said, "The heck with it! I'm going with you." So we bought a 44 foot school bus, Thomas built school bus that we're renovating, turning into a schoolie, and when we get the funding next year we're uh, going to take a lap around america start here in texas head over towards florida up uh up the coast spend a lot of time in the midwest and cover the various types of race uh, the various forms of racing if it goes fast we're covering it and it gets back to that grassroots but also i hope to follow that thread of grassroots to major league sports mm-hmm. so we'll cover nascar races we'll cover indycar races but we also want to cover um uh, late model uh dirt late models in the the southeast and sprints in the midwest and both of us have kind of a, an interesting um set of knowledge that we bring to it for me i've been I, I, i'm in my 60s, been covering this all my life, uh, or been following it all my life, been covering it for, for quite some time. And Victoria, um, much younger, but she's been following, she's been watching me follow it, and she's got her own point of view. So we've got the male, female point of view. We've got the uh, the 20 something, 60 something point of view. Um, we were brought up in different times. So Tori's view of racing is more socially conscious probably than mine was uh, so that factors into the stories that she wants to cover but uh, it kind of gets back to you you walk into a track and there are as many stories there as there are people the the fans are part of the story the the, the promoters are part of the story the drivers are certainly part of the story crew and all of that uh, all it fits into uh to, to being one big mix so uh, we've got a Patreon page where we're looking for uh, supporters. Uh, it's called Patreon: the lap around America project. And it's where a lot of my fantasy stuff has gone for the moment. So if you're looking for a way to find my fantasy stuff, now that NBC edge is shuttered for the moment, for the moment, hopefully, um, that's where you can find it. But you also find stories by Victoria and I about dirt track racing, short track racing, um, et cetera. Well, I, I've got to ask you this, you know, Ben, <clears throat> I know this will be close to your heart
1: because you've written so many books, but Dan, I mean, this is, this this screams out to, for you and your daughter to not only have a great bonding experience for an entire year, but a book. I mean, this sounds like, I mean, if I was not in racing, if I wasn't a writer, I would actually buy this book no matter what, because it would, it sounds like just such a, a great human interest piece of, you know, a father and a daughter, like you're saying, two different eras, but still uh, bonded by not only blood, but also by, you know, your your love of racing. And I, I'm curious, have you and, and Tori thought about, you know, all the stories you're going to compile? And you know, I know you're going to do a lot of writing for different uh, clients while you're on the road. Have you thought about putting the book together about about your travels, you know, the one year? And maybe maybe you'll extend this into a two-year lap of around uh, America, too.
2: Absolutely. Uh, What we want to get out of this is to build a media brand. The books are part of it. Um, I'll be working on my second racing novel, Racing Mystery, while we're out there. Mm -hmm. But then also get to the end of it and and have... have that the that book uh, probably two of them uh, have one that Tori writes one that I write the, where we compile a lot of it and then don't know exactly what the connecting story thread is going to be and I think that's the way that you have to go into each one of these experiences if you go into a race thinking that you know what the story is going to be before the the race is over. You're missing a lot of things. Though, mm-hmm. so as we go into the the lap around America, I know what I think the story is going to look like, but it's going to be an entirely different story by the time we get home um, nine months later. Um, and I, I think of this as being like we used to have point to point races, um, where Paris Dakar, uh, the Trans Siberian race, uh, those were epic races. And I think this is an epic project that that fits into that same uh, milieu.
1: Now, are you guys gonna be on the road constantly for nine whole months, or do you go back to Texas periodically, or,
2: or kind of tell me about that? The intent is to be on the road more or less completely. Uh, there might be things that bring me back to Texas mm-hmm. from time to time. There might be things that brings Victoria back from time to time. Uh, but the bus will still be on the road. And if one of us has to uh, take a break for one re- for personal reasons, um, then we'll continue to, the project will continue. Um, so I think that's, that's uh, between the two of us, I, I think we have a more robust project because of that. Now,
1: do you have any idea, I mean, just a, a ballpark number, because there's so many different series you're going to be trying to, you know, to uh to reach, you know, between uh, the Chili Bowl in Tulsa or, uh, you know, the NASCAR, NHRA, IndyCar, maybe even an F1 race or two in the States. Uh, I mean, have you got a, kind of a a game plan in terms of number of races or events you'd like to, uh, both of you would like to, uh, to reach in that one year uh, lap around America?
2: uh several per re- week um there, there are periods we're now in a period we're just coming out of one where the outlaws didn't race all that much uh when nascar wraps up towards the end of the season mm-hmm. uh we'll probably end up being on the west coast and following some of the uh the smaller sprint car series out there but the idea is to start at the chili bowl and end with the formula one race in las vegas um maybe hit miami if it if it fits the right place for a formula one race um, then things like the world 100, uh, the, the, the dream, uh, the King's Royal, they're, they're touchstones that we absolutely can't miss. Mm-hmm. And those, those get in there and then kind of look around and see whatever racing's going on. We did this in a much smaller version. I've got a buddy here or had a buddy here in town. He died of uh, cancer who was a sponsor of, uh, Jason Johnson's sprint car so he victoria and i did something we were calling to go with the flow tour because i was working for flow racing at the time uh, and we went out and i think it was about three weeks we just race chased and it's like okay we can do this I, I know that we can get the connectivity i know that we can strap the computers down and by strap them down i mean like bungee cords uh, is uh what i had to do with in uh, greg's bus um and so we know we knew we can do it and and this is just a bigger version of that but the same thing we knew which races we wanted we were going to be at the king's royal we we're going to be at the truck race uh, at, at that point that uh, that went along with that and uh, then we would okay we can make it over to gas city for a usac race mm-hmm. so we'd run over to gas city watch the usac race come back um and that that's kind of how it probably we'll have a structure and we'll publish it so people know where we are if they want to find us at the track they can find us uh, but there are times when we'll probably just say, "Hey, what the heck? Let's run over there. There's a, there's a supercross race nearby, or there's a motocross race nearby. Let's go cover that." So,
1: I, I would think, and I'm, I'll, I'll, Ben, I'll turn it over to you. And one, I just have one other question. You know, I would think that you know the sanctioning bodies like NASCAR, IndyCar, NHRA, etc., would just absolutely love to have you. You know, not only attend some of those events, but they would you know, promote it i mean i think this is a natural tie-in for not only them promoting you but you promoting them as well i mean this this to me just speaks volumes of you know what racing is all about i mean if if i'm sure ben or myself or you know any number of our friends who could have done this you know at some point in our lives you know we probably would have tried but we you know for whatever reason we can not and i applaud you that you and Tori are going to be able to do this, but I mean, uh, have you talked to some of the sanctioning bodies and, and have there been efforts to try to, for lack of a better word, work together, if you will, to promote the thing a little bit more.
2: Not really, not yet. Um, but I would think someone like the SRX series or, uh, Travis Pastrana's natural rally. I mean, when they're, when they're in the States, um, that those are things that, uh, uh, that would go well. I know Supercross is very interested in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Motocross is interested in what we're doing, but I, I know that because I've got a good relationship with them and, and write about them weekly. Oh, yeah. Um, NASCAR. Yeah. Yeah. NASCAR's NASCAR uh, is NASCAR. Does NASCAR care about anything other than, uh, than the, the, big stuff, but, uh, hopefully, uh, it's time to make the pitch to NBC. Um, I know that uh, Ross Chester or uh, Justin Marks is looking for some sort of project. So if I can get in front of those people, I want to, but, you know, you guys have a much be- a bigger name than I do in the, uh, in the industry. Uh, I'm still trying to convince people that I'm more than just a fantasy guy. Well, I've got two words for you and then to turn it over to Ben,
1: but two words and you've got to do this. And I don't know if Tori's thought about this, if you've thought about this, but two words, hero, cards go over crazy i mean fans would see you at the at the races they first thing you're gonna say hey can i have you have a souvenir or you know maybe you come up with some other souvenirs maybe you're, you'll have for sale but if you have hero cards people will love you for that
2: kind of stuff though so hmm. yeah we we did just uh print our first shirt this week so well there you, you, have you go around america shirt now
0: all right, Ben, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you then. Well, I guess, I guess I just have a final question for Dan. And again, it's an honor to have you with us today. I really do. And I know I speak for Jerry, too. It's an honor to have you with us today. Just uh, talking about NASCAR history and being able to, to equate what you see on the racetrack to numbers and statistics. And can you just put into words what it means to you to have put 25 years or whatever into this? And I mean, when you see... Your work on paper or when you see your work into a computer screen, can you just put that into words what it means to have contributed all that? Because let me say this, say it this way. You know, we're fortunate to have left something behind. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, it means the world to me to say that my grandchildren can look back when I'm not here any longer and, and they can sit down and pull these nascar scenes nascar illustrated the books off the shelves mm-hmm. maybe listen to audio and video and, and watch see some stuff i've done on tv or whatever i've been honored to be able to do that but what does it mean to you to be able to look back and say i've contributed something to this history-wise
2: i i guess i'd probably sum it up in just one word and it'd be grateful it. i
0: mean
2: yeah. it, to not have to have had to work for 25 years yeah i uh, understand it, that yeah. not not many people get to do that. Um, whether what legacy looks like I don't know I, I hope that the that the lap around America project and the books that come out of it and the novels are something that contribute to a legacy. But i've always been the kind of person, once I write it and send it off so long as I get paid for it. I never read it again. Um, don't particularly care as long as the check doesn't bounce. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
2: that's universal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, uh, that's universal.
2: That said, I have written things that, um, that I've gotten to the end of, and I look at it and say, like, okay, that's not bad. I, I'm, I'm happy with that. And um, if you get that, I don't know, it's that 35%, 25% uh, batting average. If you can be that happy with stuff you write, 35% of the time, then, um, that's, that's fulfillment. So, but grateful, I'd say grateful is yeah. the, is the yeah. word.
0: Very good. That's right.
1: Well, Dan, I can't thank you enough. It's been an exceptional podcast is, uh, just, you know, we, uh, Ben and I, we were talking about getting you on here for the last couple of weeks and, uh, You did not disappoint. This is a fantastic uh, show. I mean, we, we all, we both learned a lot and um, you know, you and I go back a long, long ways uh, and, and it's always great to talk to you. And obviously I'm wishing and Ben and I are both wishing you and and Tori the best of luck with the lap around America. And uh, uh, you tell, tell folks again, how they can get more information, uh, uh, you know, about uh, either becoming a patron or you know if there's a website, tell us tell us about uh, that. You know, let us know what that information is, and then we can uh, then we'll put a wrap on the show for today. What's what's how the, how's the best way for folks to learn more about
2: uh, about your project? But well, the two easiest ways, um, if if you know that you want to support us, go straight to Patron. Um, look up the Lap Around America project. And uh there are various ways there from three dollars up uh that you can make a pledge. If you're not sure, follow me on Twitter. Uh I'm mostly what I've been doing is fantasy racing. And then hit me up with a DM or something there and uh and I can tell you where to find more of our stuff. Um so those we, had, are the two we had, had a little bit of me. We had
1: a little bit of a glitch there. Can you repeat that after the Patreon stuff? Because we had a little bit of a glitch there. Uh, the connection kind of dropped.
2: Can you repeat that about the website and, and the, the Twitter account? Uh, so if you like what you've heard and you know that you want to support us uh, already, go to Patreon, look up the Lap Around America project. And there are various levels there from $3 up so that you can uh, be part of this project. And at that point, we'll tell you where we're going when we when we hit the road and what have you. Uh, or you can hit, find me on Twitter at fantasy race, send me a DM there or just at me um, and I will get in touch with you and let you know how you can find us. And isn't there a website you guys got going or you haven't started that yet at all? Most of the con- the content's on the Patreon
1: side. On the Patreon site. Okay, great, great, great. Okay. Well, Ben, any final thoughts from you about uh, our
0: conversation with Dan here today? Just uh, appreciate you having, being with us and enjoyed the hour and uh Come back to see us anytime. We enjoyed having you. Thanks. Yeah, definitely we we would definitely want to have you from from the road. We got when you're on the road next year, we want to get you from
1: someplace, you know, wherever it's at. So, but uh, yeah, we definitely would like to have you on a few more times for sure. So, so anyway, for for my buddy Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski, and thank you, Dan uh, Beaver, so much for joining us, and say hello to your lovely daughter Tori for us, and wishing you guys the best of uh, luck in getting the bus ready, and when you hit the road, I'm I wish I was going to be there with you when you turn that key on and put it into into drive, and you start heading out to you know the first race i i know tori had said that uh she hopes it'll be the chili bowl but it could be something else but you know i wish you guys the best of luck so so for ben white i'm jerry bunkowski you've been listening to a lifetime in motorsports podcast episode number 78 we'll be back with episode number 79 next week so have a good week everyone and we'll catch you next time right here on the lifetime in motorsports podcast